There we go. All right, so we have coming up today, I've got, we've got a quiz which will be on chapter 10 and I'll go over that a little bit more and tell you exactly what's going to be on it uh, coming up. It's sort of some of the material that I'll be going, uh, going through in lecture today and then I'm going to do the quiz. We'll be in here, assuming I did bring it, right? Yes, I did. Okay, make sure I brought it. That helps. Um, so we'll go through that right, a- right afterwards. And then there is quiz number three, which is available now, that sh- or should be available now. I did not double check that this morning. If not, it'll, I'll, I'll release it when I go back. Uh, that should be available covering chapters four through eight and nine, which is due on Monday. Monday, a big day, second set of solar observations. As long as you've gotten one new one, that's good. But you want to shoot for about six through the semester. So if you can get about six total would be would be great. Usually I expect them to get 10 to 12, but of course in six weeks trying to get 10 to 12 is a lot. So um, about five or six would be, would be sufficient for, for that. And I will give you some more numbers when we do that, when we go over that in more detail in a week, a week, week and a half or so. Um, exam one corrections and homework four will also be due on June the 10th. And then coming up next week, the second iTunes quiz will be available on Tuesday the 11th through the 13th, so right through the middle of the week that time. We'll then have a third iTunes quiz, which is probably the beginning of our last week of class, and a fourth iTunes quiz. We're out of time, aren't we? It's the beginning of the last week of class. Since I promised you four at the beginning and said I was going to drop two, the fourth iTunes quiz will just be the entire semester, so it'll repeat questions. It'll select you 12 questions out of the semester, and you'll be able to do that through the final exam time. So there will be four, you can, but two of them will end up getting dropped. Yes, ma'am? Okay. Okay. So when you're doing the changing declination, mm-hmm. if you got a number that was bigger in one and smaller in the other, would you subtract that first one? Like, you take the current one and subtract the previous one, regardless okay. of what way it is. So say I got 18.45, I would mm-hmm. take that and subtract that. Whatever was before it. Whatever was before it. Take the one you've got and subtract the one before it from it. Okay. So if you had, try that again. If you had 17 for this one and you had 19 for this one, you're going to take 19 and subtract 17 and get okay. 2. If you had 19 and 17, you're going to take 17, subtract 19 and get negative 2. Okay. So you always do it the same direction. Okay. All right. And then exam 3 coming up next week. Uh, chapters 10, 11, and 12. Exam 2, I'll probably give you back on Monday. That way you can work on your corrections. I'm still looking at a few. There was one question I threw out altogether because I realized when looking at it that I actually I look, realized it when I was making up the key that I never specifically talked about the topic at all. Might have been in your review question, review summary questions, but there was one and nobody got it right either. So I'm guessing I did not talk about it at all. And there were several others that everybody missed. So you might have seen some, I've seen some adjustments being made to the grade. So they've gone up, they've pulled up a little bit if you've looked at them on D2L. So they are available there. I'll give you those back on Monday. And then I'll give you a similar option for corrections on those uh, to do something with those, af- with those afterwards. So I did throw out a couple. I did throw out a couple questions. One was on the tide, as, as one, the one that asked about the tides. And it was a term that I never really discussed was the term I was looking for, so I automatically threw that one out and just gave everybody credit for the question. Um, so I will give you those back after. If you want to see grades, they're updated now through throwing out about four or five questions that 
everybody missed. So either I didn't go over them carefully enough or something, something was odd in the question. If everybody got it wrong, then I figure something was probably wrong with, with the question. Or with me not going over it carefully enough. So that's what we've got coming up. Any questions on that? Okay, well, photo of the day for today is actually a repeat from yesterday. So if I'd waited and done things a little bit slower, we wouldn't have had to, I wouldn't have had to go through that. You might recognize this. This is the same video that we, I showed you last time showing the star size comparisons. I'm going to go ahead and play it again anyway for you just because it fits in with really what we've been doing. Um, doing about, but same one they picked out, exactly the same one that I showed you yesterday looking at the sizes of the stars and how, how big some of the objects in the universe are. So goes to show I picked a good video yesterday. They, they liked it and did, they like and did it today. So. But again, just looking at the sizes and watch how things are getting larger and larger. Earth's moon, pretty darn big object to start off with. But when you start comparing it to even some of the other planets, it's very tiny. There's up to our Earth, the largest of the terrestrial planets. But whoa, big jump when you go out to the larger planets, the Jovian planets. Earth becomes almost nothing. Saturn, Jupiter, our little Earth is hiding, buried down there now. And another even bigger jump. Jump from Jupiter to the first to the star, the sun. Incredible difference in terms of how, in terms of sizes. And stars get bigger and bigger as we go into the giant stars, an orange giant, uh, Arcturus, a red giant star, Aldebaran, another red giant, even bigger, blue supergiant, blue hypergiant. Well, even those supergiant stars don't look very big anymore. Antares, that's one that if you put in the center of the solar system would go out past the orbit of Mars. Another red supergiant. And VY Canis Majoris, red hypergiant, the largest known star. And then it's going to give you that sort of idea of how big these actually are, how big it would be to go around this star if you were to travel around it in an aircraft. There's our little Earth for comparison. 2.8 billion kilometers. A million kilometers can be hard enough to imagine. That's 2.8 billion. But if you were to travel in an air, if you could travel in an airplane around and make an orbit right around the surface of this star, it would take you over a thousand years to make it, just to make one circle, just to make one orbit around it. Now, for comparison, the space station or when the space shuttle was up to travel around the Earth one time takes about 90 minutes. So give you an idea of how big this is, that's 1,100 years to travel around once. So shuttle can go around in about, and the shuttle could go around in about 90 minutes. The space station orbits about once every 90 minutes zipping around the Earth. So again, a repeat there, but never heard not, not one, a cool one, doesn't really hurt to see it hurt, hurt to see it twice. Question, question? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite understand why a, a larger planet, I guess the, the, the magnetic field is less, I guess, because of the mass or something like that. The magnetic field is usually greater on the larger planets. Jupiter has Jupiter has the strongest magnetic field of the of the planets. So yeah, the larger planets actually have a you typically have a larger magnetic field. It doesn't always work out that way. There can be other things. Because really, the magnetic field depends on some sort of liquid metal material inside. That 
And when you spin that, the faster you spin that, that's why Jupiter's got such a strong magnetic field. It's got this liquid material, actually liquid hydrogen, that's compressed into a metallic state. Kind of weird stuff. But when it spins so quickly, it generates a real strong magnetic field. Objects that spin real slow, like Venus, don't have much of a magnetic field. So you have to have some kind of liquid material that in it, metal, that generates the magnetic field, and you've got to spin it around. You've got to get it moving. <coughs> and that's what will actually generate the magnetic field on it. Yeah, the larger planets typically have a stronger magnetic field. Question? Alrighty. Well, let's go ahead. Oops, no, we don't want to go back there. We were almost done with chapter 10 here, and then I'm going to come back and redo part of chapter 10 again. So what I was showing you last time, we were looking at some of the different, uh, looking at ideas of measuring the mass of the stars. How can we actually determine the mass of the stars? And one thing we can use is Kepler's third law. Now if you recall, Kepler's third law said that a cubed equals p squared. A is the average distance between the planet and the, between the planet and the sun. P was how long it took the planet to orbit around the sun. Well, Newton did some work with this equation. He was actually able to determine it from his gravity, from his, his law of gravity, and he got a slightly different version which actually involved the masses. This one technically involves the masses as well, except it only applies to the solar system and objects orbiting the sun. And the mass of the sun in that system is one unit, one solar unit. But if we want to make it more general for any object, you can say that the mass, if you have two objects orbiting each other, the, their sum of their masses, if we add them together, is equal to a cubed over p squared. So now we can determine, if we can look at any two stars, the upper one, the, the visual binary where they're separate and we can watch their orbits, if we can determine how far apart those stars are, and we can determine how long it takes them to make an orbit, then we can get the mass. We can then determine the mass of those, the combined mass of those two stars. So it actually gets a little bit more complicated than this. This involves using measurements in astronomical units, years, and then we get masses in solar masses. So how much, how much more massive is it than the sun? Is it 10 times the mass of the sun? Is it half the mass of the sun? It will be relative to the sun. If you want to get real numbers, there's a big yucky constant you've got to put in there. If you want to figure out how many kilograms worth of mass there are in these stars, you've got to put some extra numbers in there. So, but that's what we can do, and we can do that. And we went over these last time. We went over the different types of binary stars that we can get. That's the only way we can get a, get a measurement of the mass of a star. It has to have something orbiting it. If you've got something out there all by itself, we have no way to determine the mass. We can compare it to other stars and probably get a good idea, but to actually accurately determine the mass of the star, we really need something else orbiting it. And these were the three types of binaries that we could get. We could get a visual binary where we could actually see both stars. So they're far enough separated apart that we could actually watch them. We could watch <coughs> them over a period of a few decades and watch them slowly orbit around each other. You could also see a spectroscopic binary, the most common type, where you're looking at the spectrum, you're splitting the, li splitting the light out into its colors, seeing the spectral lines, and sometimes they're shifted to the red, 
Sometimes they're shifted towards the blue. You're not seeing two separate stars, but they're there. And you're seeing the light as this one moves away from you, you're seeing a red shift. As this one moves towards you, you're seeing a slight blue shift. So you could do that to detect a binary star and try to determine its orbital parameters, how, how far apart they are and what the period is from that. And then finally, there is an eclipsing binary star. Eclipsing binary star was when everything was lined up just right. Imagine dragging, dragging, drawing the orbit on a piece of paper and then looking at the paper exactly at John. If you tilt it any other direction, they're not going to cross in front of each. It's not going to cross in front of each other. It has to be lined up exactly at John. So you're just looking at the very edge of a single sheet of paper and actually that's overestimating how thick it is. So incredibly perfect alignment in order to see these. So these are relatively rare, but they do occur. There are those occasional cases where stars are lined up precisely so that from, as viewed from Earth, one star will pass in front of the other. And when it does, the fainter star will block out some of the light of the brighter star and make the overall brightness drop down. So it'll get a little bit fainter. Now in terms of getting masses, what do we find out? Well, first of all, mass tells us where on the main sequence a star is going to be. So when we start determining masses, we find that the very low mass stars are all at the very lower right-hand side of the main sequence. The highest mass stars are at the upper left-hand side. So you get very low mass stars down here, much less than the sun. Uh, Two-tenths, one-tenth the mass of the sun. When you get up to the very upper end, you can get stars that are 15, 20, 30, 40 times the mass of the sun. So the mass really determines where on the main sequence a star is going to end up. Doesn't help you with the other parts. The other parts have a lot more going on. When you look at stars in the red giant range, they vary a little bit more. You don't see a direct relationship between the mass as you do here and where they are in the main sequence. White dwarf stars, again, similarly. White dwarfs are uh, all pretty similar in mass, all pretty similar in mass, actually. There's a limit to how massive they can be, but there's not a whole big variation as there is on the main sequence. So really the mass will tell you where the star ends up on the main sequence. And if we look at the different masses of stars, make a little graph here of them, turns out the sun is quite, quite the big massive star by comparison to most of the others. You start off on the left hand side, the big section there, stars that are less than a quarter the mass of the sun, so less than one quarter the mass of the sun, form about 41% of the stars. Those are some of the red dwarfs, very smallest stars. The next set between about a quarter and a half the mass of the sun, another 28% of the stars, so we're up to 69% of all the stars are less than half the mass of the sun. Stars closer to the mass of the sun, between a half and the sun's mass, are another 19%. So you got 60, 70, 88% of the stars are the mass of the sun or less. Sun's a pretty big massive star. When you look at the others, there's that last little bit that are twice the mass of the sun, about 8%, two to four times about 3%. And you get into those very most massive stars, they're only a very tiny fraction of a percent. They're very rare. Not because they don't form very long, but because their lifetime is so short. They don't live for very long. Those massive stars that might be 20, 30, 40 times the mass of the sun, they'll only live a few million years, 5, 10 million years. So 
unless they happen to have formed recently in the last few million years, we're not going to see them. Whereas we're going to see a star like the Sun, if it formed a billion years ago, it's still there. If it formed five billion years ago, like our Sun, it's still there. If it formed eight billion years ago, it's still there. So we see a whole bunch of these because they last such a long time. So it's not necessarily how the stars form, it's what we see because these stars live so much longer. These ones live about 10 billion years. This gets even more. These very smallest ones, you can get to stars up to live a trillion years. Okay? Hard enough to imagine a billion years, right? But to trillion years? No. That's longer. The universe is about 14 point something billion years old. So these ones will last you know, many, many times the age of the universe. You know, let the universe double its age, they're still going to be there chugging along, burning their little bit of hydrogen to helium, little tiny faint stars. They're going to stay there forever, long after you know, all stars like the sun have disappeared. So we see that there are a lot more of these little tiny stars that remain just because they live so long. In fact, some of these lowest mass stars, if we go down to the very bottom of the main sequence, go back one with the main sequence here, there are stars here that every single one that's ever formed still exists. There hasn't been time for any of them to go through their life yet. They're all still here. Whereas all those massive stars, they're gone in 5 million, 5, 10 million years. They've gone through many, many generations. Right? The first ones that formed, and then you know, 10 million years, 100 million years, you've gone through multiple generations. So that's why when we look at the stars, and we looked at those stars that were close to us, there were a lot more down in this portion of the HR diagram. Alrighty, so finish up chapter 10, then we're going to go back to chapter 10. Um, summary here, first of all, distances only to the very nearest stars can be measured by parallax. That's that shifting angle. So we look at the nearby stars, we look at them now, we look at them where they are, where they are in six months, they appear to shift very slightly in position and we can use that, that measurement to determine their distances. The apparent brightness is a nice easy one to measure. That's what you see when you go out at night. That's how bright the star appears to be in the sky. So, looks like a really bright star, looks like a really faint star. That's all that apparent brightness is. There's also an absolute brightness, an absolute luminosity. That depends on how much energy the star is really putting out. The apparent brightness depends not only on how bright, how much energy that star is putting out, but on how far away it is. So you could have two very, you could have two stars, one very faint and very close to you, one very bright and very far away, and to us looking out there at night, they might look the same brightness, but they're quite different. We lose that three-dimensional aspect when we look out at the sky. We looked at the spectral classes, that's the OBAFGKM setting. Uh, series of classes and they correspond to different temperatures. So higher temperatures are the O stars and the coldest, coolest temperatures are the class M stars. We can figure out the size. There's actually ways to determine the size of a star if we can figure out its luminosity, how bright it is compared to the sun, and we can figure out its temperature, how hot it is compared to the sun. So if we can get it onto an HR diagram, plot it, look at it, be able to figure out how hot it is. That's a pretty easy measurement to get. I'll show you a little bit about that here in just a minute or two. And we can figure out how bright it is compared to the sun. Again, this is luminosity is really how bright it is. How much energy is it putting out? Not just how bright it appears in the sky. 
And that's one way we can determine sizes because except for the sun and a couple of other handful of stars, we can't see them as stars. We see points of light, that's easy. We can see all those points of light we want, but we cannot actually see them as a little tiny disk, as a little tiny star. Even the very closest and very largest ones really almost look like a pinpoint even through the largest telescopes. And then finally, HR diagram. That's what I'm going to come back to and restart here again in a minute. That plots luminosity versus temperature. And most of the stars actually lie on what we call the main sequence. So most of the stars will lie on the main sequence, that diagonal band going from the upper left down to the lower right. And that's where we'll find the stars. Uh, 90% of the stars we'll find there. We got our second step on the distant la distance ladder. We talked about parallax itself, measuring the angular shift of a star. We now have a spectroscopic parallax. Nothing to do with parallax itself, except in terms of determining distances. So spectroscopic parallax, in terms of being able to determine distance, what you use is the HR diagram. You take a star, you measure its spectrum, that tells you its spectral class, so how, what its temperature is. If you use that, then you can determine where it falls on the main sequence. And if you determine where it falls on the main sequence, then you know its luminosity. So even without knowing its distance directly, you've been able to determine its luminosity by comparing it to other known previous, previously observed stars. And that allows you to determine uh, the distances. So it's our next method of determining distances. It depends greatly on the parallax itself, the regular observations of parallax, because you need some way to calibrate it, some way to determine exactly you know, where those stars, where the first couple stars land, so you can calibrate it and use everything else for it. In terms of masses, masses are one of the hard things to get. If you've got a binary system, and we'll see this applies not only to stars, but to galaxies. We can weigh galaxies the same, the same method. If I watch galaxies orbiting each other, I can do the same thing and determine masses of galaxies. So we'll see that coming up in a couple of chapters. But if we're in a binary system of some kind, we can then determine the masses of the stars. And that mass tells us where it's going to be on the main sequence. So the big mass stars are on the upper, upper hotter side of the main sequence, upper left. The cooler, lower mass stars are on the lower right-hand side. All right. Chapter 10. And all right. And chapter 10 again. Sort of. HR diagram is what I'm going to go through here. In fact, let me 